Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. And by Dewhop. Dewhop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and I'm happy to report that no federal judge has ordered a breakup of our partnership, Ben Baldanza. We haven't violated the Clayton Act, at least not yet, and we haven't harmed any low fare travelers, as best as I can tell. I probably shouldn't joke about it, Ben, but we will talk about the ruling blocking JetBlue's proposed acquisition of Spirit Airlines, and we'll talk to Marion Boyd, half of the preeminent airline consulting marriages, and we'll have an exciting announcement about a convention in Miami that we'll be attending in May. Great, and welcome, everyone. I'm looking forward to talking with Marion who is a real pioneer into hearing your analysis of the judge's verdict. We're making history right now in the airline business. And by the way, happy birthday, Scott. Well, thank you, Ben. Historic is a great word for it. The ruling, not my birthday, I can't recall a previous airline merger that was blocked by a federal court. There probably has been, maybe even back in the regulated days. I recall that the Justice Department sued over the American-U.S. Airways merger, but then settled the case with a divestiture of assets to try to preserve competition in overlapping markets. That's usually how it goes. The Justice Department tolerance for mergers varies administration to administration, right? In the past, justice allowed four airlines to end up with 80% of the market. Justice has even given antitrust immunity to large airline alliances so airline partners can set fares together and share revenue from flights. JetBlue and Spirit filed notice that they will appeal the ruling, and the judge left the door open for a revised merger plan, so there still could be a marriage. If not, the future looks especially turbulent for Spirit. Any way you look at it, we're heading into a wild time for smaller airlines, and all of this is going to shape the industry for years to come. I can't say much, Scott, because as regular listeners know, I'm on the JetBlue board. What bugs me most is that the judge called the industry an oligopoly because of four large carriers and by keeping everyone else small makes it easier for the big guys to pick off everyone one by one. Yeah. I'm eager to hear what you think, Scott. Well, well Ben, I'm going to say much the same. I think in, in like 
82 times as many words. Um, you hit the nail on the head and, uh, and as, as usual, got right to the fundamental flaw with all this. But let me start by saying I have to give Judge William G. Young credit for a highly readable ruling that lays out a lot of information about the airline industry. I really encourage listeners to take a look at it. It quotes Yogi Berra and Les Miserables, and it's actually pretty entertaining, but it also makes some very fundamental mistakes. First, Judge Young opens his 109-page ruling with the famous quote attributed to Yogi and others that it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. Beyond the impropriety of a Boston judge quoting a New York Yankee, let me suggest that the judge used the wrong Yogi quote. He should have listened to Yogi saying, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Because I think we really are at a fork in the road for the low-cost carriers. The fascinating thing here is that the judge is making a business decision, and yet the law doesn't allow him to consider the business implications for the companies. He doesn't consider whether Spirit, currently shrinking under weak demand, high cost, and staggering debt, can be the low-fare instigator it was in the past. What the judge has to consider is whether consumers will be hurt, and not the overall marketplace, but any particular market, any route, any city pair. And not all customers in that particular market, but any particular subset of customers. So the question really is only, are there any markets where Spirit offers fares lower than JetBlue and JetBlue might make the lowest fare disappear? Sure, yes, there are. Case closed. Here's the relevant quote from the ruling. Quote, the government, therefore, has proven by a fair preponderance of the evidence that the merger would substantially lessen competition in a relevant market. Close quote. That's a relevant market, singular, any market. The judge rejected a national look at how consumers would be affected and instead looked at whether there might be even one market where consumers would be hurt. Many of us have argued that bigger JetBlue competition against the big four will have more benefit to consumers in all markets than the two smaller airlines can muster by themselves. Exactly what you said, Ben and that spirit fares are unsustainable because the company is losing so much money. The judge agrees, until he doesn't. He agrees that JetBlue causes larger airlines to lower fares when it enters a market, and rivals raise fares when JetBlue exits a market. And he agrees that spirit is struggling with losses of $2 billion, that's billion with a B, since 2019. That includes expected losses this year of $467 million, while other airlines are making billions and billions of dollars in profits. The judge acknowledges that Spirit has been seeking a merger since 2016. He also agrees on the reasons for all those losses, that bigger airlines have poured more capacity into Spirit markets and are taking customers away, that costs are going up for pilots and flight attendants and fuel, that air traffic control constraints in Florida have hurt, and so have Pratt & Whitney engine inspections and repairs that have forced the grounding of lots of Spirit planes. But the judge says Spirit can't be considered a, quote, failing, quote, business, 
because Spirit executives testified that they have a long-range plan to get back to being profitable. They just don't know when or how, really. And the judge considers only one type of consumer, the one for whom travel is only possible on an ultra-cheap Spirit fare. JetBlue may have saved consumers billions with the entry of its mint business class product into transcontinental and now transatlantic markets, forcing rivals to slash prices for business class tickets. JetBlue may have saved a large family a lot of money on check bag fees, carry-on bag fees, seat assignment fees, and apple juice for kids fees that ULCCs charge, plus free TV, by the way. No matter. What the judge cares about is a cheap ticket for a college student trying to get home to Puerto Rico or tickets for a large family flying from Boston to Miami. Without Spirit, they would likely have to pay more for their tickets or maybe not be able to afford to travel. And so under the very narrow confines of the Clayton Act, the merger as is, is illegal. The judge ends his ruling with a quaint beer commercial type saying, that there are customers who love spirit and for them, quote, this one's for you, end quote. But that's a fundamental flaw in the logic here. No offense, Ben, but customers don't love spirit. What they love is low fares. In fact, for the past two years, spirit has had the second highest rate of customer complaints of any U.S. airline. Only Frontier has been worse. The judge confuses love of cheap tickets for love of spirit. Let me tell you a quick story about customers loving or hating spirit. In my time, customers were often one and done if they really didn't like it, but many repeated, but they often sent letters saying, As much as I hate you, I'll keep flying and work to lower my costs through your unbundling. So they liked us. It was because we had low prices. It wasn't because the seats don't recline or the baggage limit was only 40 pounds, or they might have to wait a couple days to get home if we canceled a flight. Ben, I think spirit is the ultimate definition of the love-hate relationship, right? And, And it was clear in the ruling that the judge loves the innovation you brought to spirit when you were CEO there the unbundling, and the ability to fly really cheap if that's what you wanted to do or had to do. I think spirit changed after you left, Ben. It got away from its hardcore discipline for low costs. It even added Wi-Fi. Spirit isn't as ultra-low cost as it used to be, so ultra-low fares aren't as sustainable as they used to be. And the marketplace is so different. Bigger airlines aren't spilling customers the way they used to. They lost a lot of business travelers, and they have replaced them with leisure travelers. Some leisure travelers buy up to premium products. Some buy basic economy fares comparable to Spirit prices. Many former Spirit customers are riding big airlines now instead of Spirit because seats are available for them now 
and they weren't back in 2019 when Spirit was still making money. One sure sign that big airlines have been targeting ULCCs. Here it is. Scott Kirby publicly predicting their demise. He and others point to higher costs as the killer of the low fare model, but that deflects the reality of the big airlines aggressively attacking the smaller ones. So now, the only way Spirit can offer those ultra-cheap tickets is by subsidizing the losses. Higher fares and all the fees don't make the company profitable anymore, at least over the past four years. So how has Spirit stayed in business? Cheap tickets are being subsidized by A, Spirit creditors, plus B, Spirit shareholders. An airline just can't keep losing money, right? Well, Scott, I've been in airlines that make money and airlines that lose money. And making money is better. (laughs) Like Gordon Bethune used to say, when you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. Spirit hasn't figured out a way out of its hole yet. Yeah, and I think JetBlue was the way out of the hole, or maybe will be the way out of the hole. So, Ben, I'd argue that if customers love Spirit today as much as Judge Young thinks, demand would be higher and Spirit could sell enough tickets at prices that would allow it to pay its bills. For the past four years, Spirit hasn't been able to do that. The judge is preserving something that can't continue. Gee, preserving something that can't continue, now I sound like Yogi, but that's the reality here. Wall Street analyst Helene Becker and others used the B word this past week, saying Spirit was in danger of having to seek bankruptcy court protection from its creditors. Things are so bad, it may not even be able to reorganize. There may be a liquidation. JetBlue, Frontier, and others may end up getting Spirit assets on the cheap in the not-too-distant future without taking on the $4 billion in debt that Spirit has. Ratings agency Fitch noted that a $1 billion loan Spirit took to mortgage its loyalty business comes due next year. Spirit has few unencumbered assets. It recently sold and leased back 25 airplanes to raise more than $400 million. But that cash will go quickly unless Spirit figures out plan B. It's hard to see how Spirit can effectively refinance debt when it is now such a high credit risk. A lot can happen and probably will. I'm reminded of a quote from a great Wall Street analyst, Sam Buttrick, who said to me many years ago, quote, there will always be airlines, they'll just have different names. You can't preserve something that can't continue. Great quote, Scott, and lots to come on this story, I'm sure. I'm very happy that you Scott can carry the water for us on this. Well, I just think it's it's obvious what needs to happen in the industry. And as you said originally, we have four airlines dominating, and what we need is a fifth competitor to make it a more competitive marketplace. Um, and I think if you if you really understand that size does matter in the airline business and really look at what's happening right now, um, it seems obvious that 
um, you know, hoping for the days when Spirit can keep offering $19 tickets and, uh, and, and make people happy with that, um, that just can't continue under the current circumstances. Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without our sponsors. We want to thank Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they are committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. And we want to thank Doohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Doohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Doohop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. And we are excited to announce that Airlines Confidential will be on stage doing the keynote interview for Aviation Festival Americas on May 15 and 16 in Miami Beach. This is the 16th year for Aviation Festival Americas, and it brings together more than 250 influential leaders from the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you'd like to attend and see the keynote podcast in person and spend some time with us, we're offering a 50% discount by going to airlinesconfidential.com, clicking on the Aviation Festival banner ad, and using the promo code AC50. It's going to be a great event, and we are looking forward to being part of the keynote address. Now let's bring in Marion Boyd. Marion Boyd is Chief Operating Officer of the Boyd Group, an international consulting firm she runs with her husband, Michael. She is well known in the industry for directing the International Aviation Forecast Summit, which over the years has been a must-see event. Marion has developed training programs for airline staff in several areas, and the Boyd Group is perhaps best known for its strategic planning research for many different sides of the industry and its work predicting trends and changes in the business. Marion, it's really wonderful to have you with us, um, especially at this harder to predict time, less, less clear time. Let's go back a little bit. You, you worked at Braniff early in your career. Um, there's been a lot of talk lately about uh, deregulation and the regulated days. Tell us about the pre-deregulation culture that you saw. Well, I have to tell you, that was a fascinating time. And the pre-deregulation was certainly boring compared to what transpired afterwards. Uh, and one of the things that uh, I reflect back on, I would have given anything to have kept that letter, but... When I was working at Braniff, Harding Lawrence, the, as, you know, the flamboyant Harding Lawrence everyone has heard of, sent out a letter to every employee and said, we are adamantly opposed to the Deregulation Act because it, we think it will affect the future of our company. Because we're not as big as most of the others, they will swallow us. 
So what you need to do is to write your congressman, write your senator, here are their names and here are their addresses and please write them and tell them that your future depends on this act not passing. Well, obviously it passed. And so at that point, uh, and I think rightfully so, Harding made the decision that, hey, you know, the only way for us to possibly survive would be to go full out to expand as rapidly as we can, as quickly as possible. So on the very first day for the opportunity where that existed was December 15th, 1978, as I'm sure you guys know. And at that, on that day, Braniff opened 15 new airport stations, 15 <laughs> in one day and 32 new routes. So it was certainly a, an exciting day for all of us and everyone with the company was very enthusiastic. And, and of course, being a Texas airline, there was that Texas spirit, I guess you might call it. Well, we can do this. Nobody's going to hold us back. You know, and even at that time, I was um, probably, I can't prove I was the first female airport director for a major airline, but I was certainly among the first three or four. And it was like, you know, you always got thrown into it, just got to do it. Just like I got thrown into the situation where we're opening up London in three weeks, let's go do it. Or we're opening up Reno in two days, let's go do it. That was sort of what helped set the pace for that was whenever Braniff, uh, actually Pan Am was awarded the route to fly to London from Dallas to first. Then Braniff got it because uh, it was going to take Pan Am so long to do it. So you get a call one morning and says, be, be in London tomorrow morning ready to open up a station in three weeks. And, and we did. So I think things like that just sort of set the tone for, you know, the entire of deregulation for anybody was going to go down that route. You had to jump in and just do it. And so then the same thing for the opening up Reno. Uh, Delta said, we can do it in three months. And Harding Lawrence said, no, we can do it in 72 hours. So therefore, we opened up all of these stations. And without going into a lot of information and detail, as most of you probably know, uh, one of the things that happened with that was the fact that Everybody talks about fuel prices. Yes, fuel prices were astronomical. Those were the days of the people standing in line for hours to just get their car fueled up. But also, probably one of the things that was instrumental in that was the fact that interest rates went over 20%. And Braniff had expanded so rapidly and so deep that those two things alone made it just impossible to get through it. In that period of time. So I think one of those things, um, you know, as we look back again, I, many people were obviously affected uh, down the line when Braddock did file for the bankruptcy as a result of all these things. But a lot of people's future wound up being brighter. Uh, but it was something that was of great interest. And I think in today's world where people don't have to operate under a regulated environment. Uh, it is so much better for the consumer, for sure. And in, in today's world too, with the airlines that have gotten so large, 
that everybody is so specialized, which is a good thing in many ways. Airlines are certainly probably safer and a better and certainly better run and more opportunities for people. But as far as the opportunity to learn a lot of different areas, that's not what people in the airline industry get to experience these days. Hmm. Well, that's a great summary of what the early days of deregulation really were like. Give us a short history of the Boyd Group. Okay, so um, whenever, it sort of backs up a little, ties into the airline deregulation and then ultimately Braniff filing bankruptcy. And I had decided along with a friend of mine uh, that we would be starting um, she and I would start uh, a conference business helping to train women who wanted to get in, whether it be the airline business or any other business, and how to climb the ladder or break the glass ceiling, as they commonly refer to it now. And along with that, one of the things I had done at Braniff was to help create the first customer service training program. Uh, at that time, you couldn't even find a book. I think somewhere in the early 80s, a guy named Tom Peters wrote the book Service Excellent, and that was the closest thing you'd get to customer service. So I was adamant about that. So as it turned out, well, uh, my, my friend I went into business with got very, very ill. And long story short, I wound up marrying Mike. And he was working for an airline called Bahaba. Airlines up in Maine at the time. And so I said, Oh, no, 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 we need to quit. You need to quit. So we started our own business. Well, he was even more hard headed and decided not only would he, uh, you know, he went on to work for an airline called American International. You may recall that one then, especially out of Philadelphia. And that was uh, six um, interesting weeks, to put it nicely. So anyway, after that, we decided, well, we'd start our own business and we were going to do that, even though all the people kept telling us, oh, you have to do it in New York or at least D.C. You certainly can't go anywhere outside of those two places. And I go, no, we're going to Colorado. So we came to Colorado. And one of the benefits of that was that you um, had this beautiful scenery. So as stressful as you can imagine, you're just getting married for the first time and you're very set in your ways probably. And now you're starting uh, a very, into a very stressful business of an aviation consulting firm. But just knowing how pretty it was outside, it helped to definitely take down the stress level. There's certainly a lot to be able to do to keep active and all of that. And uh, we never, ever regretted that decision. And initially, we thought our clients would be regional airlines because we thought all the big airlines had all the resources that they would ever need. And so we focused and actually even named our company along those lines initially and then realized one day, wait a minute, our clients are mostly the big airlines or the uh, or the aircraft manufacturers or financial firms or whatever. So we changed the Boy Group, which later evolved into the Boy Group International. And we realized that so many of our clients literally were international clients. So that was how the name sort of transpired. But from the get-go, we always felt like it was important to try to see things from a different perspective, just as the perspective of moving to Colorado to set up a firm versus going to 
DC or to New York. So you could look at it from a different angle and you could hope that you could bring some insight that wasn't seen elsewhere. And another thing that we felt strongly about is, you know, don't just sit here and try to keep repeating the past and what worked for companies or what worked for procedures. Look at ways of reinventing things. Look at ways from other perspectives. What's going to be coming down the road, you know? And I can look back and think of the time that uh, about five or six guys from Embraer were in our conference room. And from that, the EJET was developed uh, right there in our conference room. And I can look back at a number of things where we had major airlines that would reach out to us and say, you know, you see things from different perspectives. Tell us what you think of our root structure or what, you know, and in one particular major airline said, you know, we're thinking about pulling out of a major airport. We want your opinion on that. So things like that certainly always made it interesting for us. And again, so much of the work, and I had spoken with Mike earlier, I go, gosh, so many of the fun things we did, we really, I think we signed a confidentiality thing, didn't we? I can't be talking about it. But we even uh, dealt with people that were looking at building hydrogen trains to compete with airplanes. And, And of course, as you both of you guys know, we were involved with the guys who started Boom. They came up to our office one day. We would frequently, oh, probably three or four times a week almost, it seemed like for sure, three or four times a month, get people calling our firm and saying, oh, we've got this great idea that's going to transform the world, you know. Most of the time we would say, well, we really don't have time. Wish you lots of luck and all that. But occasionally there'd be some that would be of interest. So we'd say, sure. And so these guys that were starting Boom came up to the office to talk to us. And it seemed like every question that we had for them, they had an answer. So, so Marion, it's also fascinating, but the focus on the future um, really begs the question of the news of the week of whether you think the judge made a good decision to block the JetBlue Spirit merger. Um, how, how do you guys see that? Well, actually, the criteria he based his decision on, anybody that was going to use that criteria would have to make that same decision, you know, mm-hmm. from that list of things. There was no way he could say anything else. But frankly, when when you look at that, Spirit Airlines, we've always contended Spirit Allegiance, another, for example, Frontier is an example, where so many of their customers, they're not, somebody's going, oh, am I going to fly JetBlue or am I going to fly a Spirit because of the price difference? It's like, oh, had I rather go on a trip to Vegas or had I rather go get a new refrigerator? You know, it's people, it's how are you going to spend the money that you have available? Am I going to redo my front yard or am I going to remodel my house or am I going to go on a trip with the kids or am I going to, uh, to see grandma? Those are what you see for the majority or a great deal of the passengers for sure on say spirit. Uh, whereas that's not necessarily the case for sure with JetBlue. So I know that there seems to be in my opinion, somewhat cultural differences, if you want to put it that way, between the two airlines. 
Um, but I also think, too, over these last several months, you know, they have just basically been in a holding pattern. So that's sort of unfortunate in a way to say, oh, now that you've been in a holding pattern and you're not growing and not making decisions about what you'd be doing as a standalone airline, now what are you going to do? So we find that to be of interest. Mm. Marion, what are the major issues facing airlines today that the Boyd Group is is helping with? Well, I think one of the things is, again, uh, Scott, is the fact that um, looking at it from new perspectives and one of the things that is sort of concerning, and it gets back to the safety issue, I'm sure you gentlemen were quite aware of within the last several days or the last week or so, uh, the FAA coming out with hiring instructions. I'm all for, I mean, obviously, diversity that needs to be, you know, across the board in all we do. But we need to remember, too, that you put the most qualified person in there as well. And one of the things that concerns me is, I don't have the wording in front of me right now, but when it's like, oh, well, you need to hire this mentally handicapped. Well, excuse me, maybe so, but you've got to be certain about what positions those are put in because that would be a great concern. You cannot put anything above safety and you need to be looking for, as far as how you look at the future of how that will all uh, work together. Marion, you've met all the crazy characters from this industry. Who are the ones that made the biggest impression on you? Oh, interesting, Ben. Actually, you were one. <laughs> and I'm not trying to play to you, but I know uh, frequently I always had referred to you as like, you know, Ben's a lot like that little bratty brother, you know? <laughs> you got to love him, but you never know what he's going to do next. <laughs> and I think um, as I look back, um, there have definitely, definitely been some characters and I could, you know, I, I can't, there's so many of the stories I could tell about the conference that I can't tell because I don't want to get sued for one. But, but the other thing is, uh, there was never a dull minute. And in, back to you, Ben, I think you may remember one of those when at one of the luncheons um, in Baltimore, as I recall, uh, we were sitting at lunch and you were at my table and David Nealman was at my table. And I remember um, Mr. Nealman saying, where is Jamie Baker? He needs to be here to go. Don't worry. <laughs> and Jamie, I texted Jamie. I said, get over here. <laughs> so I think Jamie came. He made the quickest sprint ever <laughs> down down the street to get back there to have lunch with this group. And as you probably recall, Ben, there were a lot, lots of crazy comments and wild questions that were going on that. And I know some of them came from you, quite frankly. But uh, anyway, and, and along those same lines, one of the things I had noticed and I was when we would have these conferences as you well know the Sunday night before our opening session on Monday the host city would uh, provide a lovely speakers dinner for all of our speakers and I always found that to be extremely fascinating because here you would have these airline CEOs who frequently you know in the press act like they 
couldn't stand one another and they were big time friends and talking as a as a whole most of them were very congenial they were happy to be able to sit together at the table to discuss the industry and those were some extremely interesting conversations interesting thing and not just the airline ceos but even more so with the aircraft manufacturers about when they would speak and who gets to be first and who gets to be last and all of that and I will not to pick on Boeing. They've had enough people picking on them, in many cases, rightfully so lately. But I, one of my favorite stories of this, uh, and I'm trying to think you were probably there, Ben. I can't recall. I think it might have been the one that you didn't get to come to because of a hurricane or something. But where we had, um, you know, the aircraft manufacturers speaking and Boeing had spoken first and they're talking about this, you know, the 100th anniversary of this and the 50th anniversary of that and all. And so um, when it was Airbus's time to speak, they said, oh, I would certainly want to congratulate Boeing on the continuing of the 737, which looks just like the original one, sort of squatty like Mike and me. (laughs) (laughs) Needless to say... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that got quite the rise, and then boy, wanted to speak again. So, but, but uh, the the people have always been so so classy and so delightful to deal with uh, with the conference. And again, having that opportunity to work so closely with so many of those people to put on uh, something that we felt like you couldn't find anywhere else in the industry. And I look back at the. A couple of them that jump out at me, you asked that, was uh, one of the ones that we did was in Deer Valley at Stein Erickson's, quite a lovely lodge. If any of you haven't been there, I would suggest you go. Um, but uh, for those of you who have, know what I mean. So we had actually in the meeting room this enormous, I mean, enormous fireplace that was a real fireplace. So I said, uh, do you ever like these? I mean, do is there you know, uh, can you turn this on with gas? They go, oh, no, no, we have to bring the logs in and we want to bring the logs in and we'll come in and light the fire. And so I go, oh, well, you know, well, I think this is a good opportunity. That's when really the fireside chat started that became so, so popular, um, not just with our conference, but others. And so we would have them come in and they would light this fireplace and they would have these CEOs up there and talk about on the hot seat that really were so in so many cases. So that was always a very popular. And if I remember correctly, we had so many people that attended that conference. I was glad that the fire marshal didn't show up to count because yeah. I think we exceeded the, that room. But uh, it was certainly a very fortuitous thing that we were able to do the fireside chat because, as you know, Ben, so many of the people and, and Scott from attending it, that one of the most popular things of our conference was when an airline CEO or senior executive, w- instead of just doing a regular PowerPoint presentation, go, oh, no, I want to sit and chat with Mike. And those did become so popular because they were so off the cuff and so real. Like if they, you know, we got comment. I felt like I was just sitting on my patio or I felt like I was just out by the beach chatting or something like that. So that that certainly made it fun to do. Well, um, I hope everyone has enjoyed this this conversation as well. Marion, it's been delightful. It's been great to talk about the past as well as the future. And uh, we wish you continued great success and influence in the industry. Thanks very much. 
Well, thank you, gentlemen, and we wish you happiness and health and well. Thank you. Thank you very much, Marion. Great stuff. We'll be back with more Airlines Confidential in a moment. Promotional consideration provided by the Archive.net. Celebrating 20 years with a fresh new look and over 60,000 items of AvGeek goodness. It's the hub of air transport history and you're welcome aboard. The Archive.net. Well, thanks again to Mary. She's a real firecracker and one of the best in this industry. Then our listeners are always on top of the news and asking the most relevant questions. Tom from Detroit has clearly read up on the JetBlue Spirit situation and asks, quote, Spirit financials are a focus with the ruling fallout. Pratt engine issues are a major pain for Spirit. What compensation is Spirit due for the Pratt engine fiasco? Well, Scott, we don't know exactly, but based on what Pratt has settled with, with other airlines, it's likely it only covers a fraction of the losses from keeping these airplanes on the ground. Yeah, Spirit's going to have 12 airplanes a month on the ground for some period of time. Pratt, to its credit, is doing the right thing, right? Fixing the engines properly and offering some compensation to airlines. This all stems from a fan blade coating that a supplier delivered to Pratt with some contaminants. And the blades have to be inspected and sometimes replaced well before their scheduled life. I did a little back-of-the-napkin calculation, Ben. If you look at Spirit's revenue for the third quarter and divide it by its 202 airplanes, on average, each plane generates $2 million a month. Another way to look at it is Spirit's average revenue per passenger per flight segment was $116.43 in the third quarter. Spirit has 182 seats on its A320neos, the airplane affected, with an 81.4% load factor. That calculation gives you roughly $2.6 million in revenue per month, assuming the A320neo is flying five segments a day. It can take up to 60 days for each repair, and Spirit has about 80 A320neos. So $5 million per airplane times 80 airplanes, and Spirit is out $400 million. It may not be quite that bad if the airline can fill in with older A320s by delaying retirements for, or other means to keep the schedule intact as much as possible. That's good math, Scott, even if on a napkin. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's pretty crude, but I think it gives you some idea of the magnitude of, of the problem here. And I don't think um, that Spirit's collecting $400 million in compensation for this. That's right. Well, that's it for another episode of Airlines Confidential. We'll be back next week with more. Thanks again to Marion Boyd, and thanks again to Yogi Berra. So long, everybody. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.